Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, thanks again uh, very much for coming. Um, I think for a lot of us, uh, our uh, next guest um, would have achieved immortality had he written just the song Cheese and Onions. (laughs) Or possibly, uh, yeah, Equestrian Statue. Or the dizzying jazz of uh, My Pink Half of the Drainpipe. Yeah. But um, he was the uh, cornerstone and the main creative engine of both uh, the Bonzos and the Ruttles. And as all right-thinking people agree, he was also the seventh member of Monty Python. Please welcome the fantastic Neil Innes. So, Neil, it's lovely to have you. Neil is wearing a sensational hat. Which, uh, you know, it, it looks like you know, this, uh, be worn by somebody who might live in France, which indeed uh, you do. No, actually, this came from America, um, New Mexico. I got it off a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, the traditional question uh, normally is um, the music you grew up with. Now, you grew up in Germany. I think your father was in the military. Is that right? Yes, you grew up that's in Germany. Right. Gosh, research. <gasps> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, we moved there when I was about five or six. And... Um, it's, it's always, you know, puzzled me, you know, about what the war, war was about because I met really nice people who made fantastic cake. <laughs> yeah. And they had wonderful model railways. Yeah, what's not to uh, like? And then they were skiing, you know. And, um, but my father actually um, educated me in, in, in another way. He, he actually, when I was about nine or ten... Um, he showed us the films, of, you know, from black and white newsreel footage, and it was a different story. But it was still hard to reconcile, you know, the the rea- the, the sunshine and the place outside and the friendly people with all this, you know, the the, the war. So yeah, so I'm, I'm used to living abroad. I live abroad now, you know. I live in France. Yeah, you live in France. And what what sort of music were you listening to? Before you came over to London? Well, before I went to Germany, I mean, I'm, I'm told, I used to sort of delay having my nappy put on as a toddler, dancing around with a bare bum, conducting the radio with a ruler. 
So I think I've always been keen on music. Yes, that's uh, and I, I shows have enthusiasm. memories of Joseph Locke saying, "Hear my song, Violetta, you know, <laughs> in my gondola." But that that sort of thing. I grew up with that, and uh, and later on, you know, I gave, I, I studied the piano when I was in in Germany, and I, I got quite good at it. And I did, after seven years. I wondered who I was working for because they'd give me a, a piece of music by Chopin Polonaise or something. I mean, reading all these sort of bunches of grapes and squashed flies. <laughs> and, and, I, and as soon as I finished it, you know, and played it to some degree of proficiency, they gave me a harder one. And when, and when I was 14, I thought, who am I working for here? <laughs> you know, so I actually bought a guitar and became more interested in, in popular music. And we'd all heard Bill Haley and Rock Around the Clock and things like that. So how old were you when those things came along? About 12, right. I think, 12, 13, yeah. Yeah, listen to the Goon Show. I, I mean, I like what uh, Duke Ellington said about music, and I, I'm with him on this. There's two kinds of music, good and bad. You know, and and just it it lights me up. You know, good music makes me feel good. And um, I just, my my new grandson, who's just one, we played him some real sort of down home bass drum thumping hillbilly muck, <laughs> but good muck. And uh, you know, and he was going like that to it. And I thought, hey, good oh, it's the it's in the gene somewhere. When you so you you the Bonzos all came together when you were at, at art school and yeah, we, you I think were at Royal Holloway and Viv was at Central or whatever. But how did you all meet? And also, how, what do you remember of first meeting the great Vivian? I mean, can you remember the moment you walked into the room? Well, yeah, I, Vivian. Uh, I met. I was at Goldsmiths College in Newcross, and um, there was a big pub called the Newcross Inn, <laughs> eponymously almost. Um, this and and I was to meet Viv. Rodney Slater brought him down, and I'd never met him before. And he and there's a big Irish pub, and um, he came in and he was wearing sort of Billy. Bun- he was quite porky in those days, and he had Billy Bunter trousers, a Victorian frock coat, um, and and horrid, pince oval <laughs> glasses perched on his nose, which he didn't need, um, and he carried a euphonium. Under his arm, as, as you do, as you do, <laughs> yeah. and but the best thing of all, I mean, the most striking of all, after a while, he said, "Good God!" and he was wearing huge pink rubber false ears. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this is an interesting character. And the, you'd have thought somebody in the pub would have said, "You know," but they, the Irish are very phlegmatic. You know, they, they must have taken one look and said. Ah, we'll leave him alone. He's probably got enough problems in his own. How did you all so finish So he wasn't up? on his way anywhere. He just got no, into the pub. No, he decided to create that ensemble oh, for okay. to go to going south of the river. Rushing probably. back, I think <laughs> I forgot. I forgot to put on my my, my rubber ears. Yeah. yeah, I know. But I mean, he um, instantly he's the most likable and roguish. You know, a chuckler. A Bulgarian. You a know, Bulgarian. He, he had a belch that could do four counties. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you, a bunch of Arsians, how did you all finish up in your correspondent shoes and your um, well, that, striped double that's, breasted well, it, suit? It, it, every, every Tuesday night, I think it was, we went... Vern, I lived in the same house as Vernon Dudley Bohay Noel, 
and um, who used to teach at the St. Martin's. And the house belonged to a chap called Val Dunnett, who also was a very talented watercolourist. He taught at St. Martin's as well. So um, we used to get in Vernon's Alvis, this ancient car, car that he'd built himself, which is virtually a tin bath on wheels. <laughs> <laughs> and, and go all the way to South Kensington from Blackheath. Uh, every Tuesday night to sort of play with about 14 other people who bought very second-hand brass instruments and playing this kind of terrible Savoy Orphean English trad jazz. You know, it's, it's, it's tacky. But, it's, um, but songs like Let's All Go to Mary's House. You know, <laughs> this is the stuff that the bright young things just after the war used to jitterbug and flap around to, you know. And so we, we, it tickled our fancy to, to, to find these things. And then a competition sort of grew where we'd go during the week to junk shops or street markets and find these boxes and boxes and boxes of old 78s. And in them, you know, we'd look through, you know, because we'd all had wind-up gramophones at home. Because <laughs> uh, you didn't know what you were buying, so we... This is tuppence and thruppence each, you know, in old money. So you had to be careful. You know? Oh, yeah. And uh, what usually gave it away was a thing on the label saying, novelty foxtrot. <laughs> <laughs> we're in, we're in. And, and, great... and then your eyes would sort of go down the label, not necessarily who'd done it, but the title. And when, when you see something like, I'm going to bring a watermelon to my girl tonight... <laughs> Well, we were going to mention Hello, that. Hello, we... I think this is going to be this money is... well spent. I don't know if anybody yeah, knows. I don't know if anybody knows the lyrics to this, but the first verse goes, if I remember right, it goes, uh, I, I, I brought my girl an apple, and she let me hold her hand. <laughs> I bought my girl an orange, and we kissed beneath the band. I bought, I bought my girl bananas, and she let me squeeze her tight. I'm going to bring a watermelon <laughs> to my girl tonight. <laughs> Which they just they knew how to have they fun. They did it just so brilliant. But I love that sort of coy English humour. It's oh. almost sort of P.G. Woodhouse sort of, you know, it's hilarious. Well, all, the, all that other, the other things we found, like hunting tigers out in India. Yeah. And um, Alibaba's camel. The stalkers brought a son and daughter to Mr. and Mrs. Mr. Mickey, Mickey Mouse. Mouse. That's right. I'm like, come on. We just, you know, the whole week was full of fun. You know, I went with finding these records and finding the worst ties... You could find, gosh, there were some stinkers out there. Yeah. You know, and so we'd, we'd sort of, it would be, you know, you'd turn up once a week and you'd say, I found this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, my God, where did you get that one from? You know, the tie. And um, so, yeah. Uh, but I love the idea that this was going on while it was yeah. the Beatles, it was the Stones, it was the Kinks, it was Petula Clark, Only... you know, it was pop music explosion. And you're going off and buying these 78s. And this is the only people who were doing it, I think, were the Temperance Seven. Well, they were they, they pretty Tem- much the only group playing that kind of music. Yeah, well, the Temperance Seven did it beautifully, I thought. I mean, I, I think they were top of the pops when I was still at school. Um, so and, there was a precedent. Yeah, on. songs like yeah, Pasadena, but, I mean, wasn't it? But when I was at art school, I was more keen on the Alberts. The yeah. Alberts and Professor Bruce Lacey. They had a, they had a, um, a show in uh, Shepherd's Bush called An Evening of British Rubbish. Yeah. And that, and that sort of tied in with the Bonzos look. Of, you know, I must say that, you know, what you have to realise is that these records are all made around the time of the Great Depression. 
you know, I mean, I know we have our ups and downs these days, but it's like bipolar compared to what went on then. But to have these funny records coming out, and I think that just in our young, innocent days of being 20-somethings, uh, you know, we we just thought it's time for a change. I think we were aware of our parents' generation having been through a world war. And my mother, you know, sort of thought she was the bee's knees because she could tie her headscarf like the Queen and just about like every other woman of her age. <laughs> yes, you know. right. And you say, oh, come on, it's cheer-up time, you know. And so we rubbished the empire and everything else and pith helmets, largely influenced by the, by the Alberts. And, um, and anyway, the, the, the fact is that Ber- Vernon and I got a bit sick of this bone-shaking journey all the way from Blackheath to South Ken. We found a pub in Forest Hill near Dulwich called the Bird in Hand. And we went in there. It was like the Marie Celeste, this vast Victorian pub with a big empty back room. And uh, we said, do you mind if our band comes and plays in here? Because half the distance, they'd have to you know, meet us halfway. He said, and he's got a fag out of his mouth. He's polishing her glass. I said, well, I don't mind. You know, she might as well. So we said, all right. So we set it up. And the band duly arrived and set up in the corner. It had a fairly good piano. And, um, and we just started playing. We didn't know what would happen. But after about an hour, it was half full. About an hour and a half, it was heaving. Whatever we did, it was fantastic drinking music. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and the, the land, when we said to the landlord, all right, if we pass the hat round, he said, yes, of course you can. And he gave us 25 quid. He said, come back next week. It was like being on telly. You know? so, <laughs> so, so that's but, when, about 1966 or something like that? Oh, I can't do dates. <laughs> but it's interesting because <laughs> it there been, now yeah. there's a kind of, there's a sort of understood tradition for music and comedy. You've got groups like They Might Be Giants or you've got Half Man, Half Biscuit or whatever. But back then there was, there was Peter Sellers and there was, you know, there was the Baron Knights and uh, who else? Bernard Cribbins. A bit later, but you see, the but, pubs were really, even though the Beatles were happening, the Stones were sort yeah. of trickling through. Yeah. Um, you had... Chris Barber, you yeah. had Humphrey Littleton, you had Kenny Ball, you know, and, and <laughs> the unspeakable stranger on the shore. But man. precisely the moment that trad jazz was being booted out by the Beatles, you were bringing yeah. jazz back, which I love. Yeah, but irreverently, it, you know. It, 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 exactly, these, you know, ironically. Trad- remember, we weren't the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band initially. We were the Bonzo Dog Dada Band, you know, being yeah. pretentious art school. You know. <laughs> Dada was a, not a turn-of-the-century anti-art movement, but it was, it was founded in 1916 in the middle of the World War, World War One, And a very good thing that he said, isn't it about time we questioned what was going on? You know, and I, and I think in 2016, I thought, 100th anniversary of Dada, isn't it about time we questioned some of the things that are going on again? But, um, but that was the thing. It was a term of a mixture. But... We, I don't know, we, we, could, we could get trapped in that dec- decade, but how it moved on from that, I mean, you can see we all loved doing it and we took ourselves very seriously. I'm, 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 we're looking at a photograph here, listener. Yeah, of, uh, we are. <laughs> of the Bonzos, and I think there's about nine of us there. Yes. And so we ended up with, from 14, we turned up into that nine, and we played about five pubs a week. And it was wonderful because, I mean, art students are... A, strangers to work, <laughs> and B, you know, don't know, I'm not very good at money because paint costs money and so does beer. You know, 
So it was great to make some pocket pocket. How do you, how do you develop the, uh, the holding up the speech bubbles and the thought bubbles yeah, in the stage? That, that was part of it. Wasn't all it? part of it. Because I can vividly remember this: that the new vaudeville band came along and completely stole your entire act. And then people were coming up to you, thinking yeah. that you had stolen your act off the new yeah. vaudeville. So that that forced you away from that kind of comedy into into kind of into, and, and music into the rock sphere. Wasn't there it? we are. We're I'm looking at you. We're looking at the. Um, the felons Bob, themselves. No, no. Well, are they a new vaudeville band? I think so. Oh, I see what you mean because I saw Bob Kerr there. Bob Kerr was our trumpeter at the time. We started doing cabaret clubs up north, and we had all the suits and you know. There. And he knew Jeff Stevens very well, and Jeff Stevens wrote Winchester, Winchester Cathedral, and put the new vaudeville band together, which was um, basically session men, and he suddenly had a hit on his hands. And no Winchester to, Cathedral, wasn't it? Winchester Cathedral, yeah. Yeah. number one record. Yeah. Yes, and no one to promote it. So he brings up Bob and said, Bob, I hear you're playing with this silly band. How would you like to be the new vaudeville band? And Bob comes rushing into the digs where everywhere said, we can be the new vaudeville band, we can be on top of the pops. And the rest of us went, why? <laughs> and, and he said, well, I'm going to do it. And we said, well, off you go then, good luck. Never darken our towels again. <laughs> But, you know, the, 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 the bit was, you know, the next thing on television, on top of the pops, there they are with the same suits, shoes, bad ties, speaking balloons. Your entire Singer and alarm. No, yeah, and of course people said, hey, you're like that new Waterville band. You know. There's so we, that's when moment. we realised we were in show business. Absolutely. I read it again with you once when he talked about, uh, at this time, being in Abbey Road watching the Beatles recording. Was that uh, yeah, and so that was a bit playing? later when... Uh, yeah, I want to tell you, I think it was. Oh, no, no. We were still in that mould, doing those silly old things. Yeah. My, my, my brother makes the noises for the talkies. Yeah. Um, and that's when I went on... I, they were all doing sound effects, you know, making them up like... However you do, there's no CDs full of thousand and one sound effects. Yeah. So I, I took a break and I went down to the restrooms, and as I came back um, in Abbey Road, there's some steps, and you came back up the steps, and you, my head was floor level, just as you know, four guys with distinctive haircuts and tight trousers and dark glasses and two big miners. Minders. Minders. <laughs> Minders. <laughs> yeah. We'll leave the paedophile bit out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they came in through the door, dramatically lit by the sunlight from Abbey Road, and I thought, was them. Of course they record here too, don't they? <laughs> um, but, I mean, I was intrigued, and I, I did sneak out and listen to what they were doing outside the thing, and they were doing, I want to tell you, George's thing. With that wonderful discordant piano part. And you come kind of that na, 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 yeah. The F over the E. And years later, I was talking to George about it in the kitchen, his kitchen, and and he said, "Oh yeah, the F over the E, yeah." And he and he just outside the kitchen, there's a piano there, and I started playing, and he picked up a guitar and he went do 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 do, which is not the easiest riff. No. But he hadn't played it in years, and he immediately played it. Yeah. So we just blunked away. But, uh, but, but you that, thought that, that that's kind of the future. We've got to get away I, from this. I, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was in love, yeah. yeah. I thought, this is, this is the way music should go. It's exciting. You know, and I am a Beatle fan. You know, I'm not a fan of the Sgt. Pepper suits. <laughs> but the basic music and everything else, I, I think, you know, uh, I think um, Penny Lane 
was one of the most wonderful things. Fantastic. You know, full of images, you know, just wonderful. I thought popular music should be like this, you know. It's like a movie, isn't it? Yeah. Each verse yeah. telling the story. Had, you, you had your time with Lip, you know, United Artists, Liberty Records, whatever. You, yeah. You're on the rock circuit and so forth. How do you regard that when you look back on it now? And the, the, those records, are you really proud of them? I think, yes. Yeah, in a way, in a daft way. Not, not in a smug, self-satisfied way, but by accident. Well, they're, they're not too bad, considering. Because after the... Um, the vaudeville band thing. I think it was Lake Larry Smith who said, we should play any kind of music we want and do whatever we want with anything. You know, and we all agreed and we thought, well, we, we all had stupid suits made of, of whatever we wanted and, and, and just blew it all. And Bob did us a big favour because we wouldn't have started writing our own songs. The world would never have heard "Can Blue Men Sing the, sing the White?" White. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, 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 I take the word pride lightly, you know. But no, but we shared the same sort of sense of humour, and also at the same time, you know, we were sharing the same images. You know, we, going around the country, seeing different cities but with the same embryonic one-way systems and the same stuff in the same shops. There was an awareness of suddenly everything was getting homogenized and people farming was just beginning, <laughs> you know. And uh, so we we adopted the kind of approach of we are normal and we want our freedom <laughs> and all yeah. that kind of thing. We felt it was up to us to sort of make a bit of a row about it, uh, but have a bit of fun. With, with songs like the intro and the outro and... Um my pink half of the drainpipe and, and Mr. Apollo and stuff, they, they all seem to be having a go at the, uh, at the kind of um, self-important and the, the, the celebrities and uh, the famous and the ego-maniacal, you know, and I felt it was a kind of satire. Did you think of yourselves as satirists? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But what we failed to realise at the time, we, we were being just as egotistical and self-important yeah. as anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were sort of like saying, oh, you said we are normal, you know, oh, look, here comes some normals. You know, I mean, that's outrageous, really. But it, it was innocent fun. It was a kind of collective observationism that we were doing, you know, we, we lived very closely in the band, in the, in the van, and, you know, and often there'd be periods of silence and someone would say, screaming fit? Yeah, screaming fit. Okay, screaming fit. We go, ah! You know, <laughs> wonderful. And, 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 and we had, again, Vivian was one of these larger-than-life characters. We, we, we became very keen on the hottest curries we could find. And... Um, once we were going through Leeds and said, look, look. And there was a restaurant called the Kyber Pass restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we had to eat there. <laughs> but once we came out of a, a restaurant at lunchtime and um, walking around, I said, where's Viv? And he was back down the pavement. And a little old lady with one of those wicker shopping baskets with wheels, you know, he'd sort of wave, you know, drop down on one knee and started singing... 
One alone to be my own, I alone to know her caresses, one to be eternally the one my worshipping soul possesses. <laughs> anyway, all right to the end, yeah. he goes, anyone else would have been swiped around the head with the handbag. Yeah, but he but got at the end, Yeah, at the end she said, oh, child. that's very nice, love. Thank you very much. Not at all, my dear, you're most welcome. Well, he's so charming. It was a, a brilliant song, which I'm sure people here will remember, Shirt. And uh, in the middle of shirt, the recording, he 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 went out with a with a with a microphone on a kind yes. of hundred foot cable and just interviewed people in the street about that's, about shirts. Right. That was, that and, was Roger Spears' song, shirt. Yeah, but he he we put all the microphone leads we could together. Morgan Studios in Wilsdon and made them reach Wilsdon High Street. <laughs> You may ask why, but only after this. <laughs> but to sort of liven things up, he went out with this this kind of rabbit's head helmet. That's right. And in his underpants. Yeah. And I, and I can hear there's somebody saying, "Well, look at him. He's, he's got a head on him like a rabbit. That's enough normal, isn't it?" You know? That's right. Yes. <laughs> Which you don't understand as a listener, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then talking about shirts, you know, I said, well, "We're talking about shirts, you know." So. He said, do you like the short shirt or the long shirt? Well, well you've got to be fashionable these days. Yeah, you know, you're well. certainly with it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I remember it I mean, so no, well. Nobody was doing that much. No. Any, every blinking news around programme does Vox Pops, as they're called. But they were very fresh and, you know, they... You never knew what you were going to get, and it was just fun stringing it all do you, together. Do you think that one of the reasons it lives on so well is because it was funny? So people just repeat it to each other. There'll be somebody tonight saying, J. Arthur rank on gong. Yes. Or, they will. They just will, they will. be. You know, yes, they, yes. Some yes. people in a pub will be yeah. saying, you have the same yes. trouble with your trousers as I do. You know? yes. I still send text uh, messages to a mate, and every time we're always Quasimodo on Bell yes. or Adolf Hitler on Vive. You think it's hilarious. Looking very relaxed. Yes. Looking very relaxed, exactly. I know. I know, but uh, that was recorded in Regent Sound, which was in Denmark Street, on four track, one inch four track. Half inch? No, good. Very thin tape, and um, uh, and we had to sort of keep one track free to mix the other two down and so on and on. on. This went on forever, you know. Because look how many overdubs there are in that thing, but. it was, I, I, it was, it was a, a great thing to have done. Because it probably, if you sort of sat about it and thought about it, and said, "Oh, why bother?" You know. <laughs> but we didn't, and we and we made it. You know, and uh, and it was a vivid inspiration. You know. And you became incredibly fashionable, didn't you? I mean, all all the, the kind of rock, the rock fraternity. Well, they were so all jealous. You. You, were, you were actually they, even played the the the, the, the Isle of Wight Festival. Was that right? Yes. That's, Who that's were you on before and after? Can you remember? I can't remember, but I know that Legs Harry Smith had disappeared with Keith Moon somewhere, <laughs> and we hadn't got a drummer. You had no drummer, that's right. No. Wasn't Jimi Hendrix on that? Oh, no, I don't no. think he was, not that one. No, but Who played drums in his absence? Well, Jim Capaldi. Jim Capaldi, that's right. <laughs> of Traffic, yeah. And Dennis and I, Dennis Cowan, the bass player, you know, was, we're used to Larry, who was an art student and stranger to work, and he used to get tired of drumming and just stand up and blow kisses to people. <laughs> so we'd have to keep it going, you know. Yeah. And now we were with Jim Capaldi, a real drummer. You know, we were having a time of our lives, you know. And all of a sudden, 
Larry suddenly appeared. And we were like, oh, no. <laughs> so, it was all going so well. It was. Yeah. It was. And, 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 and so he picked up a tambourine and faffed around and blew some kisses, you know. Then we get to Canyons of Your Mind, and he goes over to Jim and said, this one's a bit tricky, Jim. I think I'd better take it. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, split up because you were trying to crack America, weren't you? I mean, you were supporting the, the Who and the Kinks and people like that. Weren't you? I mean, I, I think it all became too much for Viv, didn't it? You started to unravel slightly. Uh, he unraveled a bit, but he certainly wanted to go. Yeah. Um, and um, that was the thing about the Bonzos. For five years we were on the road and fated and doing all this thing, um, but we 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 never had a holiday, and we bought off three managers. I know it's expensive, you yeah. know, and so we had to keep doing things, and then and then it was uh, and Tony Stratton Smith, Charisma Records, and all sorts of. Other, he said, "Well, you just go," you know, and unfortunately, I think he picked 1969. That was the year that just about every British band went to America, and managers were sort of you know bare fist fighting, you know, for the gigs that were there, and um, so but we went, and and yes, and Viv. Did unravel, but he before then he'd sort of signalled his enthusiasm for going by sort of saying, "I hear you know the audience is wonderful out there, and you know they want to touch the hem of your robe." <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, so I've forgotten why we talked about America. But well, we should know. go back in we should go back in time very slightly because talk about you joining. Um, Do not adjust your set. There were three members of uh, Monty Python and Denise Coffey and uh, David Jason. I think. Yeah. How, how, the, did, how do you? The Bonders get involved with that. You did about twenty-six shows, I think. Yeah, we did. Um, more, the, the incredibly youthful Humphrey Barclay. I think he was about twelve at the time. <laughs> he just left Cambridge. Um, you know, sort of got given the job of coming up with the children's television program, and so he immediately did the Oxbridge connection. Got Mike and Terry from Oxford and Eric from Cambridge. Found Denise Coffey and. A, an up-and-coming character actor called David Jason, yeah. who we adored, actually. He just split our, you know, we... Um, and, and then, you know, the, so the first 13 episodes um, were done with the Bonzos, and, and, and this, you know, and it was, it was just fun and, and vibrant. There was a chemistry right from the off. You know, there was a certain amount of circling of suspicion between the Oxbridge lot and us. You know, we were art school, and they were... You know, sort of more, you know, compare yeah. and contrast kind of writers, and um, and they liked Chinese food and we liked Indian food, so <laughs> we'd take them out to Indian food and they'd take us out to Chinese food, and that, but it was all, you know, jolly, and um, but we um, had to do, you know, something out different every week, but we were working all week. And and and, it, and, and it was so gigging all week, gigging all week. week, and then oh god, it's time. And I once you... we were in our digs, and the phone went, and I picked it up, and they said, "Rediffusion, the television company wants to know what props you need for next week's show." Oh no, they got Larry. That's right, they got Larry. I'm telling the story wrong. Larry answered the phone, and they said, "What props do you need?" And he said, "Oh, three card boxes, three cardboard boxes, a springboard." And a petrol tanker. <laughs> <laughs> and when you got there, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but two days later, tanker, two right? days later, who picks up the phone but Muggins? We've got the cardboard boxes and the springboard, but we're having trouble with the petrol tanker. 
would an oil drum do? <laughs> and I had the luckless task of telling them, well, Larry was kidding you. you know? And this, you know, went on, you know. Um, so, and often we'd make up, um, you know, we'd dress as footballers or something. We'd do, you know, in the last, last minute, we'd, we'd think of something by the time we got there. And never did anything the same twice. So it was... Was it live? Yeah, no, as live, as live, right. yeah. But there was telecine, I think. No, I think it was, you know, I think it was live. Yeah, because that's why... Children's programming. Yeah, yeah. With the Bonzo dog band. Yeah, yeah. Eric Idle, whatever. It's live. Well, I remember seeing you on pizza. And now a completely naked man. And Eric sat in the chair going, hello. I can can remember seeing you on Blue Peter doing Bill Bailey, I think. I mean, you know, amazing. Oh, yeah, we did Blue Peter. We did did all sorts of things. You know, but it was the 60s. It was the late 60s. It was a blur. Yeah. You know, people did whatever they did. And, um, but Python said that, that, that they were very influenced by... Uh, well, I was just going to say that it was the an- anarchy yeah. of, of the Bonzos. So they suddenly thought, well, we don't need a punchline. You know, we could just... And, no, and then by the second series, Terry Gilliam had joined yeah. with these fabulous animations. And it was great. It was another allies, another art student. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, that morphed into Monty Python and now for something completely different. And it's largely from the influence of, you know, these irresponsible, you know, not them. This is radio, isn't it? Yeah. We're looking at sort of nights from the uh, Holy Grail. We're looking at the Holy Grail, a picture with with, with, uh, um, with Neil on the far right there. It was. It was, um, you know, the the way it morphed. It, It certainly made Python seem possible because, you know, Mike and Terry and Eric had worked, and Terry Gillen, the two Terrys, Mike, I think, had experience of that. And and I think Cleese was writing with Chapman around the same time and on a Thursday night they used to stop and get home early so they could watch Do Not Adjust Your Set. So And they <laughs> rang you up and asked you to be the warm up man for the for the When they became Python, yeah, yeah. Eric rang me up and said, you know, sort of um do you fancy coming up to Shepherd's Bush, you know, to why? He said, I'm warm up man still. I said, I don't do warm ups. He said, it's 25 quid. I said, all right, done. So when does it start? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you toured with them and uh, I know, you wrote I know. music for um, Matching Tire and Handkerchief and yeah, you were really involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and all the live concerts. And it worked really well because, I mean, I could do my little bits while they were rushing off and getting changed and things. It, no, I mean, how lucky can you get? I mean, A, being part of the Bonzos and then being part of the Python yeah. situation. I mean, Fantastic. You, you know, there's no way you could sort of put that on a sort of mission statement, CV, ambition. No, no, no. <laughs> yes. When do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Yeah. In Holy Grail, you were, I can't remember, you were crushed by a giant wooden rabbit or something. Well, this is it. Both Terry Gilliam and I, you know, get it from the, the words, people. They don't really understand pictures or music or anything. You know, so... Their insecurity comes out, you know, so that every time anything heavy is lobbed out of a castle, it lands on me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I'll just talk about a little bit about your... your is this your first solo album? How yes. sweet to be an idiot. Yes, that's right. And those were the days when you could, you know, you could pose on the cover of your, um, your album with a, you know, a duck hat on while... Yeah. Holding a kind of prosthetic penis, I think it's fair. Well, 
You read that into oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's just my dad. It, it, it still never occurred to me. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I think there was, there's all sorts of things. There's probably one like that, you know. Um, but it was just um, the clown thing. I've always liked clowns. And have you ever seen Slava, the Russian clown? Have everyone seen his snow no. show? It's fantastic because... Not only does it make you laugh, it actually makes you weep. I mean, let me... Have we got time? The, the opening of Snow Show, Slava comes out in like a boiler suit and he's got a rope around his neck. And everyone goes, huh? And he goes into the centre of the stage and you don't realise he's been crouching in the boiler suit because he suddenly goes up a foot when he lifts it. People go, huh? Like that, and he suddenly noticed there might be people or something. And then, he, anyway, he does this just the right amount of time. And the audience, when it get more courageous, they say, No, no, no. And they say, Okay, so he starts pulling the rope, and he pulls this rope, and there's about 40 feet of it, you know, and he goes, Oh, I'm pulling the rope. And then at the end of it, there's a little clown with the rope around his neck. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, you know, and I love that sort of thing. So I was big on clowns in those days. And that's, that's really right, how really. sweet to be an idiot and wearing a kind of duck on my head. So one, one track on this record proved to have a strange afterlife. <laughs> Which one? The one that... The, we need the story of the, of the legal case with, with Oasis. Because uh, our sweet be an idiot. Oh, that, of yeah, course. What, the oh. track Whatever from, by Oasis, yes. by Noel Gallagher. Well, clearly lifts the entire melody from How Sweet to Be an Idiot. Well, and, and there was a, a court case. No, there wasn't. There wasn't a court case. Um, the papers left to say there was. You know, they said there was a court case over the Ruttles. There wasn't. It's just... But Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, rang me up and said, have you heard of Oasis's new records? No. He said, well, it's very similar to How Sweet to Be an Idiot, which he knew because we used to do it on Grimm's. And... Um, he said, um, uh, the, Nicky Campbell has just played it back to back on Radio One. So there's already oh, right. this thing yeah, going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, I, and eventually I did hear it. And I thought, well, the opening line's the same. But I don't know. And so I thought, well, I'll ring up United Artists. I thought, EMI, I think it was publishing. I said, but what about this? Oh, we're on it. We're on it. You know, what do you mean you're on it? He said, well, we've got it. We're settled. You know, they settled for 25% or something. Oh, well, all right, then, well, you don't need... <laughs> That's great, so you get a credit. Yeah, exactly. You're credited all the way. No, and, and spool on. Um, the Noel put out a box set or something, and he wanted to put whatever on it, and they, they rang up and said, look, this is a pain, you know, to have to sort of go through the publishing for this freebie single or something like that. I said, no, go on, do ahead, you know. So anyway, Noel sent me a lovely box set with, you know, autographed Neil. So it's, it's, it's people in the business are much nicer than the businessmen in the people. You know. <laughs> yeah, that was certainly racked up to be a bit of a bit of a court case. But well, of course it was, it was. amicably settled. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah. never underestimate uh, never underestimate the enemy. You know, because they had a headline: Neil Ennis to sue Oasis. You know, for whatever, whatever. And um, if you read on, if you bothered, it says. Neil insists to sue Oasis over the use of the whatever, how sweet to be an idiot. Or at least we assume he is, because we phoned up and he wasn't in. So, <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, so he, he must have been in court. That's he right. must <laughs> have been seeing his lawyers. You know. 
some rigorous and, news hounds yeah. of the enemy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Never allow a fact Robust to interfere with yeah. a good story. Yeah. So the Ruttle stories started with the uh, Rutland Weekend Television, and there were a couple of sketches, I think, short sketches with with the Ruttle's band. Yeah. I said, been... well, how did that tra- you know translate into becoming all you need is cash? Well, very, I very... do love these titles. I forgot. Yeah, I, know. About, I am Eric, the waitress. Eric is a master. I, I, I am the waitress. All, all you need is, is cash. And what was the other one? I can't buy me lunch. Oh yeah. I mean, it's just, that was the second. Forgotten. Well, no, Eric is a master of those things. Yeah, uh, I am the waitress. Your mother should go. <laughs> Your mother should go. <laughs> uh, and WC feels forever. You know? <laughs> Superb. But no, it did. It did start. You know, Eric asked me when we were doing Drury Lane. So if I fancied doing television with him, and I said, I don't like television, camera's not pointing anyway. So you can tell the camera's where to point. Oh, I said, that's different. And so he explained Rutland Weekend Television, smallest county, smallest budgets, you know, a, a licence to make cheap-looking television, and that's probably the only reason BBC Two commissioned it. Um, so my job was to come up with musical ideas with the images to go with it, and he would work on some skits. And uh, we'd meet up every now and again and say, what have you got, what have you got? And we'd put, write them on postcards and put them on the notes board and see where the shows were. And I said, well, I, I think we could do a, a spoof of A Hard Day's Night. You know, it's black and white, speeded up, four guys in tight trousers and wigs running around the field. <laughs> Cheap. <laughs> yeah. And he said, that's good, that's good. I've got this sketch about a documentary maker who's so dull the camera runs away from him. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Six or seven minutes sorted. No. So, and it, but, it happens in the film, and he runs after the van, doesn't he? Trying to keep up with the camera. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but the camera says, I've had enough of this, you know. No, is it? <laughs> yeah. So, um, at the same time, Phil Bernstein, or somebody who put the, be- the promoter of the Beatles in America, trying to get them together again. Oh, it's Sid Bernstein. Sid, Sid. I'm talking about Phil Silvers, that's what I'm thinking of. Phil Silvers. Yeah, that would have been good. Brilliant. Uh, but anyway, he uh, is offering them $20 million each and a killer whale as a pet. You know, <laughs> if they'll get back together. No, you, the world, the world was heartbroken. The Beatles had split up. What on earth? You know, it's like the moon is colliding with the, you know. So, Saturday Night Live. Um, this NBC spoof satire program started doing a running gag on it, and they got George Harrison on. And and Lorne Michaels, the producer, had three thousand dollars in cash, and waved it under George's nose, <laughs> saying, "All this can be yours, George. Just get the guys back together again." You know, and, and George, doing his best acting, said, "What? All of this for me?" And he said, "No, you have to share it with the others. Maybe you don't have to tell Ringo." You know, <laughs> these jokes were out there, you know. And so, to spoon it on, they said we got Eric Idle to host the show because they always had a host. Because he said he could get the Beatles back together for $300. <laughs> so, you know, and then and come to the moment, I said, Lorne comes on again. Well, we have to apologize because, you know, as you know, Eric said he could get the Beatles together for $300, but we realise now it's a bad phone line and he hasn't got the Beatles, he's got the Ruttles. And they showed the clip from Rutland Weekend Television and the, and the running away thing. And people were ready for it. After Nixon, whatever, the collapse of the Beatles, 
they were writing in with beetles crossed out and rottles written in. So Norm Marks just had to go downstairs and get the budget for all you need is cash. And it's 40 years ago this year that it was broadcast on primetime in America. And I'm most proud that to this day, it's the lowest rated (laughs) program (laughs) on primetime ever, you know. And who remembers the episode of Charlie's Angels? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> People were suddenly going, what is this? You know? yeah. <laughs> too, too, too stoned or something to sort of change channels. You know? I watched, oh. it, but how I watched it again the other night. You must have had such fun making that yeah, music. Total fun. It's a fantastic film. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I watch it once a year. Well, I, I mean, I, this is why we tour it. You know, every now and again you get the pang. You have to go out and play them again. They are a lot of fun. How I mean, did you write those songs? Because you listen to songs like, um, you know, uh, Hold My Hand and uh, I Must Be In Love, and it sounds like you can, you can specifically recognise echoes of three or four different Yeah, Beatles well, songs. a lot of people think but I sat not... down and listened to the Beatles songs. I didn't. I knew I'd be sunk. Because going back to the thing, all of a sudden they're going to do the whole story. Let's do the whole story, you know, in the barn, you know, <laughs> with with um, Mickey and um, what's that? Well, well, who's the? That's it. Thank you, Judy Garland. Speak you. up. Thank you. <laughs> and um, either, it was that kind of moment, and I thought any minute now, you know. And sure enough, and I was sitting in a cool way on the windowsill across the office, and they suddenly realised. They're going to need songs. <laughs> and they looked at me and they said, Neil, do you reckon you could write 20 more Ruddle songs by next Thursday lunchtime? And I said, oh, well, I'll try. You know, and, I, and instinctively I knew if I listen to any Beatles songs, I'm sunk. So I came from the, 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 the approach of where was I when that song was doing? And I, I tried to recapture the environment and the the hardest songs you know you have to remember I was lucky enough to go to co-educational school Um, so girls were not a mystery you know in our school so the the, the hardest songs were like Hold My Hand and I Must Be In Love and and things like that the other ones like Pineapple Pine in the Sky and you know Swastika Nightingale's crooning tongue in cheek was a lot easier. (laughs) The psychedelic thing you could just have a lot more fun with. But they were signposts. You know, you needed like Love Life, you needed I Am the Waitress. Yeah. So, and the other rule I made was if if I can play the song on a piano or just a guitar and it still works as a song, I know it's a song. Yeah. Then, then you listen to the production. And you learn from the master, you know, George Martin, and, and, and they're the Beatles' own creativity. And so, yeah, I, I managed to write the songs in about three months. And another good idea I had, is you can count them on half a hand, <laughs> was um, to, to get the band rehearsing in this place in North London uh, with a chap called Alistair with two Revox machines, and we recorded. And we came out after two weeks taking a break to watch Wimbledon. Um, as a band, we played, and we, and we went into the studio, and the whole album, from beginning to end, overdubs mixing was ten days. Incredible. The second one took even longer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But what no. did the Beatles think of it as managers? I mean, we well, can tell George Harrison was obviously enormously enthused because he was in the movie. But I mean, what, what John Lennon, I think, liked it. Didn't he, he did like it. He did. But um, Paul McCartney wasn't quite so. I don't think actually. No. And the more I, I think about it, uh, the less I think he liked. He, he's always been always been very nice to me, but I, don't, I think he hated Eric's portrayal of him. Yeah. Or you know, um, but he's always been very more than generous to me. But I think. Really, you know, he 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 does, you know, he he takes the view that you know you couldn't have done it without us, which I don't think is quite fair because a lot of the Beatle music they couldn't have done if it hadn't been for other stars of music, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like you know back to Duke Ellington again, good and bad. You borrow, you take what's good, you know, and and but also you, so clearly affectionate. I mean, there's it, no reason to tell exactly, exactly. So I mean, it, George became a, a, a good friend of yours, didn't he? Yes, yes, absolutely. My wife, Yvonne, is a very, very good garden designer. She's got more than 12 medals from Chelsea Arts, uh, Chelsea Arts Club, Chelsea <laughs> Flower oh, Show. Sure. And, um, oh, she might have got some medals from Chelsea. George has this fantastic place in Henley um, with 40 acres of, of, of garden. It was laid out by a, an eccentric called Sir Frank Crisp. And, and there's a Japanese garden, a topiary garden, there's a rockery that's the size of a small house. It was the scale model of the Matterhorn. You know, and George has brought it all back to life. And, you know, and only George would do it because he had the money to do it. And, it's, and, and so Yvonne has helped... A lot in the you know in the garden in right. the kitchen garden and things like that. It's an immensely difficult yeah. problem to garden on that scale. Yeah. Do you put three hundred maples in, or you know, yeah. how many bedding plants yeah. or whatever? Yeah. So you know we, we over the years we sort of you know. Well, those of us who were lucky to be at the uh, the concert for George, the memorial concert, remember you in the and we're looking at a picture of it now actually, and that's you on the I think the far left as a as a, as a mountain. Tom no. Hanks on the far right next to Eric. Yes, no, Tom Hanks. No, I'm actually playing the piano. Oh, you play the piano? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I've accused you of being somebody else. No. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a photograph up there with yeah. That's when I directed one of uh, George's videos. <laughs> it, um, it, long story short, you know, but. Uh, it was for Blow Away. And Jonathan Clyde, who was working with George, said, you know, can you come up with a script? And we, There's not a lot of money. And I came up with a script. And George says, well, buy, that, buy him a camera. <laughs> you know, so that was his way of saying yes. So we, we did that video of Blow Away. But the, it was, Tom Hanks was the sort of celebrity in that one. But when we did the City Center, there were all kinds of people. George was a Mountie one night. And um, but, but most memorably, um, Harry Nielsen. He was the only Mountie with his buttons done up wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and when he took a bow at the end, he couldn't stop and went straight into the orchestra pit. <laughs> <laughs> no drink was That's taken. That's Harry no, Nielsen, it is. I know, but he was completely unhurt. No Harry Nielsen was hurt in the <laughs> no, making absolutely. of this song. You know. <laughs> Just very briefly, the Idiot Bastard Band, the ah. latest incarnation with uh, Aid Edmondson, Phil Jubitus and Roland Riveron. Yeah. yeah. And what, what, what sort of stuff do you play? Well, anything we like. <laughs> um, we, the idea was to do it in a pub, which we did. And we only did one tour, but um, 
Aid is, is, is very, you know, musical. I mean, he's also done the Bad Shepherds and things like yeah, that, which is yeah. really good. And yeah, punk, we, but punk we wanted to played do, on ukuleles, didn't we? We wanted to revive the comedy song a bit. And so we, d- right. we did that. And, and people like Paul Whitehouse came down. And, and he can, he's got a tremendous voice. He can sing like Tom Jones. Really. I mean, it's not effortless, you know. And um, the, the thing, um, is it, who is it? There might be giants who did the, the, the thing about the sun. The, uh, Birdhouse in your soul. No, no, Birdhouse in your soul. The what? Yeah, is that might be giants? Yeah. yeah. And so Thank you. Paul <laughs> Paul is doing this, you know, and I'm playing the piano next to him, you know. And I suddenly realised he's doing the most impeccable impression of Brian Cox. Well <laughs> 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 oh, <no. laughs> I start wetting myself, you know, and, and I nearly put him off. I said, Brian Cox. He said, <laughs> you know. But we had a lot of fun those nights in the pub. It was really good. So, no, no. so now you're about to go on tour. Yep. Again. Yep. With the Ruttles. How's that going to work? Well, I'm raring to lie down. You know. <laughs> 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 so, no, it's it's going to be fine. We, we're going to put in some new songs we haven't done before, like Nicker Elastic King. <laughs> um, there's a, the, the thing is, um, it, by by chance, you know, I've, I've never had an ambitious bone in my body but um, one thing led to another anyway it c- occurred to me it would be fun to do a Ruttle album, it wasn't quite a, a, a proper Ruttle album but a bits and pieces thing and so I thought well why not call it the Wheat album <laughs> it, it is all white actually and it has got a corn dolly on the back but it is, it, it's, the Wheat album is an album for Ruttle fans with ears Oh, because, <laughs> oh, it works. It works. Because, uh, I know, I know. He's done. Well, what about your mother should go? Come on. <laughs> um, the, 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 the thing is, there's a song that some people would have heard um, called Imitation Song, which has crept out, but not really properly. So that kind of kicks it off. But the rest are the demos from the album Archaeology, which are... They were looked after by someone else, not me. I can't look after it. And I thought, they've actually got a life of their own. There's a wonderful version of Ina Klein, a middle class of music. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and um, Nicker Elastic King. Yeah. And, and these songs have come of age. And I thought, well, to sort of nod towards the White Album a bit, I had this thing I did a while ago um, called Them. And it was basically a poem about evolution three minutes you know they, they came faceless on jelly limbs crawling out of the living sea and it was this kind of very BBC East Lynn voice and, um, and and I thought well I can call it evolution number 10 so oh brilliant <laughs> superb and I had a muck about with it and then sort of I've got number 10 Number ten. Yeah. Number ten. And I put a few humpback whales on there. And actually I, I think it's really quite nice. That's brilliant. <laughs> and so there's that on there. And um a wonderful version of um of, of Shangri-La, which is different. Um and a thing that Rory Bremner rang up one day and said, This week the the Beatles have put out Free as a Bird and Lady Di has gone on Panorama. 
I said, I can do Lady Die. Can you do the Beatles? <laughs> I said, again, I don't know. I'll, I'll have a thing. And, but it came together. I mean, I wrote the song called Don't Know Why. And it's like based on Free of the Bird, but, you know, with the same kind of feel. So that's, that's it. And I, I, I like it because I think over the 20 years, these songs have come of age and they actually remind you of the sort of funny world we live in now. And I, I think they're kind of humorous, but they're kind of, they've got a clown-esque thing yeah, about them. They do. Yeah. They're a little bit sad, but they're a little bit funny as well. So you're playing, what, 20 dates? Yeah, at least. So yeah. you'd be coming to a town near, near everybody... Pretty much, yes. <laughs> Don't ask me to remember. I know, no, we're, no. We're doing, I know we're doing London on the 9th, on the, in the garage, and, and the Comedia in Brighton on the day after. Um, I, I think I already know the first few. Right. We, go to, we go to Aberdeen, we go to Glasgow. We nearly went to Stornoway, but it was a, a bridge too far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're going to probably do a, a tour of the Highlands, um, just to get up there and do it, and, and probably go to, to Ireland as well, Era, before they can put a border in. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm sure everybody's looking forward to that. It's... Well, well, we are, you know, we are, you know. But uh, we, we, we're calling it the Major Happy Tour, because those of you who don't know the second album, uh, Archaeology, there's uh, you know, a song called Major Happy. Major Happy's up and coming once upon a good time band. And um, this is the Major Happy Tour. And for some venues, we're actually introducing a Major Happy Hour. <laughs> no, we're having fun. Brilliant. Neil, it's been a pleasure to so talk to you. Oh, a joy. Thank you very it's much for having me. It's been lovely to have you here this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, Neil Innes. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you and, by The uh, Word. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming. And uh, don't forget to deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.